you have your Bibles, let's go to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to go. we got a lot to say. Um, and listen, there's a little bit of discipline in this. Uh, for you as a body, I'm a little disappointed in you. Uh, a couple days ago, I put out on Facebook, I needed you to share a slide. Um, I needed 30 shares, and we got 25. And because of that, we're going to be at an extra 15, 20 minutes today, okay? <laughs> All right, maybe not on purpose, but I'm, I, listen, this is, this, is such a need, this is such a needed sermon. I promise you, I promise you, this is for you. This is for you. Because I know that you struggle with this, because I struggle with this, and I hear stories. There's not a human being on this planet, there's not a human being in this room that doesn't need to hear this sermon today, all right? So Matthew chapter 11, verse 1, Jesus says, well, let's, let's pray. Man, this is such an important sermon. Father, I pray that uh, your spirit right now would just rest on us. We, we, you're already here. You're already stirring us through these songs that are just speaking truths of who you are. God, we're so thankful for every testimony that's been given, that you are redeeming lives. We're so thankful that we can hear stories. Of, like even Tyler, we're still celebrating that. It could have been so, that story could have been so much different today, and yet you protected him. Um, I just pray that now we hear these words, and they stir our hearts, and most importantly, they strengthen our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, when Jesus had finished giving these instructions to his 12 disciples, he went out teaching and preaching in towns throughout the region. If you remember uh, in chapter 10, Jesus commissions and equips his disciples to go on mission, right? Preaching the kingdom of God while also warning them. We got some warnings last week of what's going to happen. There's going to be some dangers along the way that, that, that's going to be around us and what to expect along the way as a path on the path of discipleship. Well, here in, I said chapter 10, that was chapter 11. Here in chapter 12, uh, the Spirit reveals a greater danger that is lurking within the heart of a disciple. Okay, so now chapter 11 is about the dangers around us. There's going to be people that persecute you because of your message, Mitch. Okay? There's going to be more, more of that, by the way, more of that. I mean, the scriptures warn us that as the day approaches, less people are going to want to hear the truth and less churches are going to want to tell the truth. And so we've, we've got to be very careful that we don't compromise. We don't go out and we don't beat people up because that's not how Jesus did it for you. Okay? We go out and love people but we cannot quit sharing the truth. So here in chapter 12, the Spirit's gonna reveal this great danger that is lurking within the heart of a disciple. And it can, I would say this, I think what's lurking here can hurt us far more than anything that's lurking around us, okay? So in verse two, it says, John the Baptist, we're re reintroduced to him. He was earlier in, in Matthew, and here he's back in chapter 12. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all, he's in prison, don't miss that, we'll come back to it. So John the Baptist is now in prison. He heard about all the things that the Messiah was doing. Now, a little further down in the text, um, in chapter 11, uh, I keep saying 12, it is, we're in chapter 11. You guys with me? Okay, <laughs> in chapter 11, okay, it's been a few weeks since I preached. So we was in chapter 10 like two weeks ago. We're in chapter 11 today. All right, so a little further down, look at verse seven, because this is what Jesus says about John the Baptist. He says, what kind of man did you go out into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed, swayed by every breath of wind? And we know this. If, if you know the story of John, you know he was not a weak reed, right? 
Absolutely not. He was a man on a mission for God, empowered by God, to boldly call people to repentance. Now, think about this for a minute. John's purpose was to prepare a people for their Lord by calling them to repentance of their sins. And because he wasn't weak, he called out all sin to all people, even the religious Pharisees that showed up on the banks. He'd call them out. He'd call them names, right? But that's not what landed John the Baptist in prison. What landed John the Baptist in prison is he decided to call out the king's sin. Herod was kind of Rome's appointed ruler over Galilee at the time, and he had married his brother's wife, and there was, there was a whole Jerry Springer episode going on in Herod's family at this time. And John the Baptist just has the guts to look the king in the face and call him out. He called sin, sin to the king. Wow. Now imagine getting into the face of the king and saying, what you have done is wrong. It's sin. You're a sinner. Repent and turn from your wicked ways. There's only two ways you can respond to a message like that. You either submit to the message and you repent, or you shut up the messenger. And of course, this is a wicked king, and so he chose to shut up the messenger. And so he went with option B. He silenced John at the time by throwing him to prison, and he would later have John executed. John would die uh, because of this whole Jerry Springer episode and the wicked, yeah, it, it's a whole story. You should go read it. It's interesting. Uh, so here's where we find John. He's, he's in prison, and he's hearing about all the things that Jesus is doing. Verse, at the end of verse 2, it says, so he sent his disciples to ask Jesus. Verse 3, this is so profound. Are you the Messiah that we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Now, let's not miss what's going on here. What John is experiencing is exactly what every one of us in this room experiences in our own walk with God. One of the most dangerous things that we can do as Christians is put our expectations onto Jesus. Because what happens, or let me ask you this, what happens when Jesus doesn't meet up to our expectations. What happens when Jesus isn't doing what we think he should be doing? And who are we to th- who are we as creation to think we have any say in what God does? Yet we do. And that's what's happening here in the text. John the Baptist is hearing of all the good things that Jesus is doing, and there's tension building in John's restless heart between what Jesus is doing and what John thinks Jesus should be doing in that moment, because John's probably thinking good things. John's thinking, hey, listen, I've got a lot of ministry left to do. There's lots of people who still need to hear that the Messiah has come. There's much that I need to be doing. There's more people I need to be talking to. I need to be preaching more. I need to be baptizing more. Why hasn't Jesus delivered me from the hands of this wicked king? I'm much more valuable out there than I am in here. So why isn't Jesus relieving me of this evil here? Where is he? What's he doing? So John starts questioning what all of us questioned. Is Jesus the one? should we look elsewhere? Now, don't miss this. John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus. Okay, let's just go through this. I'm not quite there yet, Jeff. Do not miss this. John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus. 
John the Baptist is the one prophesied about in the Old Testament as the one who would be the forerunner of Jesus. He would be the one ministering in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. John the Baptist is the one that announced, he got to announce and introduce to the world, behold, the Lamb of God. John the Baptist is the one that baptized Jesus, and he witnessed with his own eyes the Spirit falling from heaven like a dove and resting on Jesus. John the Baptist heard with his own ears the voice from heaven, the Father affirming his Son. John is so confident in this moment that Israel's king had come, that he is willing to get into the face of Rome's appointed king and call out his sin. But now, John's sitting in a dark lonely prison cell, and he's doubting the very same thing that every single one of us in this room have doubted. Is Jesus really the one, or should we keep looking? Let me say this about doubt. Doubt is the enemy within us pretending to be our friend that is slowly poisoning us to death. Doubt is the enemy within us pretending to be our friend while slowly poisoning us to death. Our doubt about Jesus falls into one of two categories. Number one, now we're ready, Jeff. Is Jesus the way? In other words, is Jesus really God? Is Jesus really who he claims to be? Is he the one? Is Jesus the way? Or in this category, is Jesus' way the best way? In other words, did Jesus really do what he says he would do? Is he really going to do what he promises that he was going to do, right? This is so important because the only tactic the devil has to attack against the church is to slowly chip away at our confidence in who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf. Every scheme against us is to get us to doubt that Jesus is the way. And that his way is the best way. In Genesis 3, everything is perfect leading up to Genesis. Everything is, we can't even fathom that. But there's no sin, there's no struggles, there's no suicide, there's no suffering at all, there's no death. There is is perfect all of the time. Everything is perfect between husband and wife. Everything is perfect between creation, creator. There's nothing to hide. There's no shame. There's no guilt. Again, we can't even wrap our minds around that. We've never experienced it. Not even for a moment have we experienced that. And then chapter three, the serpent shows up. And do you realize there's only two, there's only two things recorded here that the serpent says in the garden. Only two statements. Verse one, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals The Lord God had made, and one day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? The very first thing that Satan asked is, did God really say? Oh, I hear that today. Did God really say that it's just a man and a woman to be in marriage? Did God really say... And you fill in the blank, right? We have those conversations. And of course, Eve answers. There's a dialogue here, which I've talked, remember years ago, teens. If a snake ever talks to you, stop. Don't talk. It's just going to get you in trouble. Run, right? 
And she goes, of course we can eat the, we just can't eat it with this one tree or Jesus, we can't touch it or Jesus says we'll die. And the only other thing is recorded here in verse three, in verse four, you won't die, the serpent says, because God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and you'll be like him, knowing both good and evil. What's he doing? Again, trying to plant seeds of doubt about God's words, about God's motives, questioning his ways and it worked. Your life is not how it should be today because it worked in Genesis 3. And a lot of your, and by the way, we can't just blame it on Genesis 3. A lot of your life isn't the way you would even like it to be today because it works on you too. Unchecked doubt leads to sin. And the Bible says sin always leads to death. Everything we experience that is broken, everything that we experience that is dead or decaying is the cause of Adam and Eve's sin. But it started with a conversation doubting God's word in his heart. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says that it isn't possible for us to please God without faith. And I suggest to you that our doubts about who God is and what he is like is the greatest enemy of our faith. In Matthew 21, there's a story. I won't read the whole thing, but Jesus and, and his disciples are on their way back to Jerusalem, and it says Jesus is hungry, and he sees a fig tree. So, this is so amazing to me. He sees this fig tree, and he goes, oh, hey, we're hungry. There's a fig tree. He walks over there. There's nothing on the fig tree but leaves, and Jesus goes, may you never grow figs again, and the tree withers right in front of him, and I feel that because I've been to Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> Seriously, there was a time we went to, and you know what they said? We have everything, but we're out of chicken. And my first thought is, may God smite thee, and may you never be able to make chicken again. It might have came out like, well, if you guys can't get it right, or hire somebody that can make sure you have enough chicken, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, Jesus never sinned, but I got to think in this moment, that he was right, like, right up to the border. He's like, we're hungry, you don't have no, I mean, he could have just said figs. He goes, no figs. You will never grow figs again. Die. And it died right there. And the, and the disciples are going, what just happened? And here's what Jesus says. I want one verse, uh, verse 18. I want to start there. When Jesus told them, I tell you the truth, because they just said, how did this thing die so quickly? He says, if you have faith and don't, those are, they're, they're at war with one another. He couldn't have said, well, if you just don't doubt. He couldn't have said it if you just have faith. He goes, listen, if you have faith and you don't doubt, this is powerful. Look at this. You can do things like this and much more. You can even say to this mountain. Now, we want to read this through our westernized ears like, all right, God may have won the lottery. That's not what this text is saying. <laughs> he says, you can tell this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. You can pray for anything and if you have faith, you will receive it. Listen, James said something very similar in, in chapter 1, James chapter 1, verse 5. He says, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Faith is in God alone. Do not doubt. For a person who is divided, loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea and is blown and tossed by the wind. Faith and doubt cannot coexist. <clears throat> they, are in, they are not compatible. Doubt will always work to chip away our faith. So we must intentionally choose to feed our faith and starve our doubt. 
or we will inevitably feed our doubts and starve our faith. Because we either will defeat our doubts or doubts will eventually defeat us. So how do we do that? How do we overcome and defeat doubt? In other words, what can we do to help better convince us that Jesus is the way and that his way is the best way? Well, three observations from our text. Three things I want us to remember, and then I'll let you go. Number one is this. Remember that where you are is why you doubt. Okay? Let me me unpack that a little bit. John the Baptist in this text is sitting in a prison, experiencing all the emotions of failed expectations of how he thought things should or would unfold. They're not unfolding the way that he thought they would. By the way, prisons breed more doubt than palaces. It's kind of hard to doubt God when you're sitting on the throne and the bank's full and everybody's healthy and right, like life's good. Everybody makes it to church without rolling their vehicle, right? Like, yeah, yeah, no doubts here this morning. But when it's, the account's empty, people are sick, your son rolls his car on his way to church, that's, there's the prison and there's the doubts that, that, that start to pop up in our heads. When things are not going the way we expect them to go is when doubts show up asking questions. We, we live in a sin-cursed, broken world where everything is not as it should be, nor will it ever be the way that it should be this side of eternity. And we must live in that tension, not daily, moment by moment. We are constantly forced to live in the tension of what should have been, what is, and what will be. And that journey is full of opportunities for us to doubt. We doubt when we see evil prevailing in our land. We doubt when God seems to be stationary. We don't see him moving. We don't see him doing the things that we obviously think he should be doing as a holy God. We doubt when we suffer or our loved ones suffer because we hear the subtle whispers of the the devil. They go like this, is God really good? Because if God is good, why would he allow so much bad to happen in your life? Does God really care? Because if he did, he would do something about your situation. Is God really in control? Because if he is, why do wicked people prosper more than you? Is God really all-powerful? Because if he is, wouldn't he have done something by now? If he has the power to do it, wouldn't he have done it? Or maybe the devil turns the conversation upside down and says things like this. A good God could never love you because he knows who you really are. A holy God would never forgive you because he knows what you really did. And it works, doesn't it? Doubts begin to chip away at our faith and we sit in our self-pitied prison questioning, is Jesus the one that we've been waiting for or should we just keep looking elsewhere for something that's going to to satisfy us, that's going to take care of us? And, And brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you this morning. This world is not our home. In this world, Jesus said we will have troubles, but he has overcome this world. And he tells us not to let our hearts be troubled. John 14, right? John 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in me, right? I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come. When it's ready, I'm going to come again. I will receive you into myself that where I am, there you will be forever with me at home. 
This world is not our home. Doubts are part of the curse. But hold on to your faith. Hold on, we're not home yet. I love this. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. That's Doubt is part of that. Doubt is waging war with your soul. Number two, uh, remember that we are not alone in our doubt. I know we're not supposed to find comfort in others' misery, but can I just be honest for a moment? I do find some comfort that the greatest man to ever live, that was Jesus' words, not mine, doubted just like I doubt. In fact, <laughs> some of the most encouraging parts of the Gospels is, is watching the disciples screw up so much, say things they shouldn't say, do things they shouldn't do, be like, thank goodness. They're human, and they're normal, and, and they struggle, and just like we struggle, and I need that. I, I need to be reminded of, of that. They struggle with the same temptations and the same emotions, and they fall through the same thoughts and the actions, or maybe the inactions, Right? But there is this pivotal moment in John chapter 6 where Jesus is preaching this sermon. And everything goes sideways in the sermon. If you could ever preach a bad sermon uh, from a perspective of drawing a crowd, Jesus broke all the rules here. All right? he, he's preaching this, this sermon. Uh, the crowd's following him by. He's got this huge crowd. Why wouldn't you like? When you say you're hungry and he like, produces all of this bread out of nowhere, like, okay, we'll just make it keep going, you know, uh, What's he going to do next? So there's this huge crowd following Jesus, and, and it's amazing because Jesus says, and Jesus knew it. He says it. He goes, you're following me because I'm giving you all this stuff. And then he goes into these, I tell you the truth, I have bread that if you eat it, you'll never hunger again. If you drink of, of, of this, you'll never thirst again. And, and all the crowd's going, give it this bread. And the disciples are all going over there, probably going, don't do it, Jesus. Don't say it. Don't say it. We're trying to draw a crowd. Don't say it. And Jesus goes, well, uh, I am the bread of life. You must eat of my flesh. And the disciples go, no, don't say that. Because the crowd's going, well, how are we to eat him? You know, like, <laughs> read the text. The Bible's very interesting. They're like, what is going on? Jesus is like, I'm the bread of life, eat of my flesh, and drink of my blood. And the disciples are going, stop it, stop, just do the altar call, call it, right? And of course, the crowd's going, of course, this was too good to be true, right? We thought this might have been our answer, but what it is, it's a cult. Like, listen, if I ever show up here going, eat of me and drink of my blood, I leave. Or actually, don't leave. Just kick me out and keep having church because we are no longer a church. We're a cult. And so I can imagine the crowd going, oh, no, this, we thought he was the answer and he's just crazy. Right? And again, the disciples, just stop, stop. And he keeps going. Like, read the sermon. He doesn't, I want to pick it up in verse, I think I have it on the screen, verse 53 of John 6. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood remains in me and I in him. And at that moment, the crowd leaves. <laughs> They're out. Like we were in all the way up to eating your flesh. 
Messiah? No. It says that. Look at verse uh, 66. At this point, many of his disciples turned away, and they deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the 12, and he said this. Are you going to leave too? Aren't you going to go with him? And this is so profound, because Peter speaks up, and he says, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. And from that point on, the disciples never doubted again. We know that's not true. Mitch is getting ready to get up and speak Second Peter again and kick me out of the church. No, it, it, we know that's not true. In fact, one of the disciples would, be go, would go on to be known as the doubting. He's a disciple. His first name changes from Thomas. No, it's, Thomas is his last name. It's Doubting Thomas. Hey, where's Doubting Thomas? DT, get over here. Like, stop calling me that. In Matthew chapter 28, we know this is such a powerful, the great commission, right? Jesus summons them to this mountain. He's going to give them this commission, and he's going to ascend to the, the, to the throne. And, but I want you to look at a few verses that maybe we never pay much attention to. Look at verse 16. The 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus is told. This is right before he gives them the commission. When they saw him, they worshiped him. But some of them doubted. Even after seeing him alive again, there was doubts. There were struggles. And I don't want to paint the disciples as being weak men because they would go on to give their lives and die for Jesus. But something very dramatic happened between those two events. As they waited for God behind closed and locked doors... The Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost, fell on them just like he fell on Jesus. And they, they were empowered by God. They unlocked the door. They swung it wide open. They started walking through the streets, preaching Jesus. So loudly and so crazy that the town's going, it's not even 11 yet. They're drunk. Again, read the Bible. These disciples are wasted, and it's not even time to be wasted. And they start preaching, and I love their message. Peter, we're not drunk. We've been empowered to say this. Jesus is risen. You killed him, but he came back to life. Repent. That's the message. He's alive. You killed him. He's back. You're in trouble. <laughs> Repent. That's the story. Remarkable, because they went from hiding in a room waiting to preaching to the ones they were hiding from. And their message, again, is just so bold. Now, of course, they would still struggle at times with their doubt, with their newfound power, though. They're still in a polluted world, broken world, full of sin. But listen, now they had a helper living within them to remind them and testify of who Jesus is and remind them of what he had said. And the good news is, is that the Holy Spirit will help us too. Just ask him. You don't have to hide your doubt. 
You can hide it from it. You can't hide it from Jesus anyway. Just go to him and go, I'm struggling today to believe you are who you say you are. He's big enough to handle that prayer. Just like the father in Mark 9 who brought his sick son to the disciples to be healed. They couldn't heal him. Jesus saw the commotion. He runs over there. What's going on? The man says, Jesus, if you can heal him. And Jesus, whoa. What do you mean, if I can heal him? He goes, no, no, no. I didn't mean that. He goes, I believe, but help my unbelief. And that's, that's kind of the prayer we're going to be praying the rest of our lives if we live in the tension between what should be, what is, and what will be. It's like, I believe, but man, I need you to help my unbelief. Because it's a moment-by-moment struggle sometimes. We're not alone in our doubts. The greatest in the kingdom of God doubted, but we too now have the Holy Spirit within us testifying of the person and the works of Jesus. Just ask him to help your doubt. I believe, but help my unbelief. Let the Spirit breathe fresh vision into your hearts daily as you search the scriptures to find God and to know him deeper. Remember why you don't doubt and that you are not alone in your doubts. Number three, remember nobody else has done what Jesus has done. C.S. Lewis says of Jesus that he was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was in fact the Lord. In the Gospels, Jesus claims to be God. Unless you have the Mormon Bible, then they take all those verses out. But in the New Testament, are the Jehovah's Witnesses. In, in the New Testament, Jesus claims to be God over and over. John, just read the Gospel of John. And so he either said that, knowing it was not true, which would make him a liar. Or he said those things believing they were true even though they weren't, which would make him a crazy lunatic. Or he said those things knowing they were absolutely true, which C.S. says makes him king of kings and lord of lords. John sends his disciples to ask Jesus in this chapter, are you the one or not? Should we keep looking elsewhere or not? And Jesus answered in verse 4, through six by saying this. You go back and you tell John what you've heard and you've seen here. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. And it would be easy for us to just keep reading here and, and miss what Jesus was literally saying to John. I, John didn't miss the point. It's easy for us to miss the point, but we're not going to. We're going to stop for just a moment because when John would hear these words repeated back to him, Jesus told us to tell you, John, that the blind will see and the lame will walk and those with leprosy are cured and the deaf would hear, John would say, Isaiah 35, that the true Messiah would come and he'd give sight to the blind, he'd give hearing to the deaf. Whoa, right? The dead are raised to life, John would go, Isaiah 26, that the true Messiah would come and give life. And the good news is being preached to the poor. (gasps) Isaiah 29, there's a prophecy that says the Messiah, the poor will rejoice in his word. Jesus was telling John, you don't have to look any further. I am the one. And Jesus didn't just fulfill three or four Old Testament prophecies. He fulfilled them all. 
every single one of them. Isaiah 7, 14, the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Micah 5, 2, the, uh, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah would come from the line of Abraham. He would be a descendant of Isaac and Jacob. He would be an heir to David's throne. The Messiah would be betrayed and falsely accused. The Messiah would be beaten and whipped. The Messiah would remain silent before his accusers. The Messiah's hands and feet would, feet would be pierced. Messiah would be crucified with criminals. His side would be pierced. He would be buried in a borrowed tomb. He would resurrect from the dead. He would ascend into heaven. Every single one of these and so many more. Jesus fulfilled perfectly. These are, these are things that were said hundreds, if not longer, years before Jesus would ever walk the earth. The psalmist predicts his death on a cross before they had even invented the execution of the cross, before Rome even existed. How crazy is that? Like, what do you mean he's going to die pierced hands? What kind of execution is that? Oh, it's going to become one of the most gruesome crucifixion executions that Rome would ever invent. And Jesus fulfilled it all. Nobody, listen, nobody has done for us what Jesus has done for us, taking the form of a servant, walking among us, identifying with us, suffering as one of us, becoming sin for us, dying as the atonement for our sins, exchanging our sin for his righteousness, loving us when we were unlovable, forgiving us when we were unforgivable, pursuing us as we ran as far as we could from him. Jesus is who he says he is. He is Lord and he loves us. And we need to preach that to our doubt. We need to remind our doubt that Jesus is the way because he died and he came back to life. How do we, how do we defeat doubt? We remind ourselves of who Jesus is and what he's done through the fulfilled prophecies, through the power over sin and death and his promises still to love and provide and protect and deliver us. One of the greatest weapons against present doubt is past experiences of God's faithfulness. Are we going long? Okay, that's your fault. You didn't share it. I, I, we got to do this. We're doing it. Go to Psalm 77. I want us to see this play out in real time, the psalmist. This is amazing. Look at verse 1. It says, I cry out to God. Yes, I shout. Oh, that God would listen to me. When I was in deep trouble, I searched for the Lord. All night long I prayed with hands lifted toward heaven, but my soul was not comforted. I think of God and I moan, overwhelmed with longing for his help. Interlude. You don't let me sleep. I am too distressed even to pray. I think of the good old days long since ended when my nights were filled with joyful songs. I search my soul and ponder the difference now. Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? Is his unfailing love gone forever? Has his promises permanently failed me? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he slammed the door on his compassion? And I said, this is my fate. The most high has turned his hand against me. And we can relate to this guy, can we not? Look at verse 13. Oh God, your ways are holy. Is there any God as mighty as you? You are the God of great wonders. You demonstrate your awesome power among the nations. By your strong arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. And here's what I think. Is this the same guy? In the first 10 verses, he's like, where are you? Why aren't you? Have you given up on me? Are you done with me? Have you slammed the door forever? Have you forgotten how to love and be kind and compassionate? And then he's in verse 13. Just, we're just three verses. Oh, God, you're so awesome. 
What happened? Verses 11 and 12 happened. But then I recall all you have done, oh Lord. Have you forgot how to love me? Have you given up on me? But, but then I remembered the last time I thought you had given up on me. I remember what you've done, oh Lord. I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. They are constantly in my thoughts. I cannot stop thinking about your mighty works. I love this because it's, it's in real time. It's in real time. God, where are you? Have you given up? Oh, I, yeah, I remember all your faithfulness. Oh, God, you're so good. That's how we defeat doubt. Because doubt's job is to get you to forget everything he's done that's good in your life. And in your prison, when you're sitting in your prison, it's hard to remember those things, isn't it? Oh, it's so easy to forget about God's faithfulness the last time you sit in your prison. Mm. Paul says it like this. This is one of our favorite passages here. He's saying the same thing in Philippians 4. He says, don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Thank him for what he's done. It's got to be part of it. Why? Because it, it's just... You're reminding yourself. As you pray, you are remind, you're preaching to your own heart. You're preaching to your own doubt. God, I want to thank you for your faithfulness to us as a church. And in that moment, you're reminding yourself, God's faithful. I want to thank you for being thankful or being faithful in my marriage or in my life. I, want, I bet Melissa's already prayed, God, thank you for being faithful to my son. <laughs> right? And then when he goes back to college tomorrow, the next day, and she's starting to freak out. Was God? She can go. Wait, he, he took care of him today when his truck's going, however it's going. That's faithful, right? Peace guards our hearts. I didn't finish that. If you continue on down, it says, um, uh, "Then you will." If you tell God what you need and thank Him for what He's, he's done, then you will experience God's peace, with, which exceeds anything we can understand. His, his listen. His peace will guard your hearts and minds against what? Part of it. Yeah. Peace guards our hearts from doubt, but peace comes when we dwell in the gratitude of what God's done. Nail it down. Jesus is the way, and his way is the best way. And you preach that over and over and over. And don't just say it. Man, let's, let's give the devil some examples. Of course, he's, of course he's the way. He fulfilled every prophecy in the Old Testament. Are you kidding me? Is his way the best way? Well, let me just remind you real quick, Serpent of how he's been faithful to me in the past. Get out of here, right? And also we, I, I, man, I'm gonna skip some of this. We just don't beat ourselves up, by the way, in our doubt. You, you can read that in Jude chapter one. I'm, I'm gonna read it. Uh, chapter one, it says this, verse 20. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who will bring you to eternal life. In this, uh, in this way, you will keep yourself safe in God's love and you must show mercy to those whose faith is, yeah. In other words, be merciful to yourself be merciful to our brothers and sisters who struggle in their faith. Expect doubt. Just don't become comfortable with it. Defeat it by remembering you are not home yet, you are not alone, and Jesus proved he is God by fulfilling Old Testament prophecy and dying and coming back to life. And so I'll close with this. I want us to recognize three gifts, three tools that Jesus has given us to help fight against doubt. Number one, God's word. That's what we've been talking about here. But I, I just need to say this. 
God's word, listen, you cannot complain about how much you're attacked by the devil and how much you doubt if you haven't opened your Bible in weeks. We're either feeding our faith or we're feeding our doubt, and there's no greater buffet than the word of God. Can I suggest this? If there is something you are personally doubting, like if you can identify that doubt that just keeps showing up, Go into the word and find where God addresses it and he gives you a promise. If, if you're beating yourself up all the time, Romans, man, 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Maybe you just need to memorize that and every day you just preach it to the devil. Preach it to your own heart, man, when your heart's doubting. Oh, man, I, what am I getting joyful in the Lord for? I don't deserve to be joyful. I'm just a sinner. And No, there is no condemnation. Am I alone? Maybe you need to memorize, God will never leave you nor forsake you. Just preach that to your heart. Identify what your doubt is and go find scripture that speaks directly to that doubt and you preach. Memorize it. High God's word in your heart so you won't sin against God because doubt leads to sin and sin leads to death. And so if we're going to take God's word and put it in our heart so we can preach it to the devil into our own wicked hearts when it starts to doubt that God is who he says he is and his way is the best way. Number two, um, I would say this. Oh, by the way, midweek, can I give a plug? We're starting that on the 28th, not this Sunday, Wednesday. We backed it up a week. I needed one more extra week. For the next seven weeks, we are going to go through the story of God together from Genesis to Revelation. It's not verse by verse like we're doing here. This is, this is we're gonna hit the highlights and you're gonna, it's gonna be dialogue. You're gonna, we're gonna have story time, like, and daddy and kids, and then there's going to be questions, and it's going to be a glorious time. And in six weeks, because the first week's chicken and dumplings, and uh, there's going to be a sign-up in the back, okay? And we, hey, this is part, it's already there, so if you want to start signing up for this, that'd be great. This is part of it. This is part of us becoming as familiar as we can with God's story, okay? So just free plug, all right? The second thing is this. He gives us God's community. He's given us the church, He's given us one another. I won't, I'm going long, so I'll stop. But in Hebrews chapter 10, you know this. We know part of this verse, right? But can I read it in full context? Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. You've probably heard verse 25 before. Don't forsake the, the, the assembling of yourselves together. That means you shouldn't miss church. Shame on you for missing church. The Bible says do not forsake. But they leave out the context. There's, there's purpose in this. It's not just so we can go, well, you had a full crowd and I'm going feeling good about myself. You know? It's not that at all. It's a, we come in this place and we sing and we talk to you. We come early and we stay late. Not too late. But we, we come and we, we have fellowship with one another. And we, we serve together on Saturdays. And we meet together in midweeks where we're a little more hair laid down, relaxed atmosphere. And these are moments that together, the us, we encourage one another. We stir one another's affections to for, to, towards Christ. Hey, it's in those moments that we hang out with each other, we can start to hear where someone is doubting, and we get to help. Hey, let me just speak into your life for a moment and encourage you. We need each other. 
He, the writer of Hebrews also said we should be encouraging each other daily. Right? So it ain't about, hey, just come to church. It's about we're here. There's a reason why we're here. We're here to, to, to exhort Jesus, but to edify one another as well in him. In him. Lastly is this, communion. Uh, there, I don't know if there is a greater uh, tool that God's given us than communion. Communion is there to remind us of what God has done. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Identify your doubt. Preach the gospel to it through the elements of, of communion. We're going to end today with communion and a song about what we believe. But, and we're going to do it like we did two weeks ago. We're going to, in a moment, I'm going to release you. There's a station here, station here, station here, station back there. You can go get your communion. I want you to cluster. You sit by yourself and do it if you want to. Get in a family and do it. Get into a couple and do it. Get together several people and just take a moment and say, I want to remind you in this circle that if there's doubt, today Jesus wants to remind you his broken body was broken for you. His suffering was sufficient. You no longer have to waller in your own suffering. Let it go. Get into your groups and remind one another of the bloodshed for the remission of our sins. Hey, you don't have to work at trying to please God. Jesus has fully pleased him on your behalf through his shed blood. Receive it. Live in it. This time of communion is a time for us as a church to speak into each other's doubt. Lift the bread and lift the cup and let's rejoice together in what God has given us through the shed blood and the broken body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer, this, we don't want this to be uncomfortable for you. We want you to be a believer. We want you to come to a place that you can enjoy the Lord's table with us. Just... You, you can join a group and you can just stand there and be a part of it and listen to them kind of speak into each other's lives and pray together. Uh, or you can sit there, it's up to you. But we're gonna end with a song together in just a few minutes of, of declaring what we believe as God's people, the church. Um, but right now I'm gonna invite you to get up. I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna give thanks for this and we're gonna ask you to take communion together. Father, we thank you for the, the broken body. We thank you for the shed blood. We thank you that we can find life in you, that we don't have to try to, to, we don't have to try harder or be better. We just got to place our faith in the one that was perfect on our behalf. God, I pray that if somebody's coming into this room this morning doubting that they've been feeding their doubt, doubts more than feeding their faith, I pray that in this moment there's a, there's a turn. I pray that they are allowing the truths of who Jesus is and the truth of what he's done to begin speaking to our doubts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Find yourself a group and, and take communion together. <laughs>